I'm Lauren. Hello, I'm Sarah. And welcome to Montalino Mama. Welcome back to another episode of Multilingual Mama. Today, we have the pleasure of talking with Olga Ivanova, a Spanish professor at the University of Salamanca in Spain, and a multilingual mother of two Russian-Spanish bilingual children. In addition to the research uh, she does on cognition and bilingualism, she is the founder and acting director of a nonprofit organization that aims to support Russian-Spanish bilingual families to maintain their language and culture in the Salamanca area. Welcome, and thank you for agreeing to do this interview. Yeah, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you very much, Sara, for, for inviting me to, to participate in, in this interview. So I'm really glad to be here. Can you start just talking a little bit about yourself, what uh, languages you speak, how you learned them, how confident you feel in each of those languages? Well, um, uh, it's a good question because um, I, I come from a multilingual family. So my parents spoke different languages to us both. And um, we didn't live in the country we were born in. So at the end, um, my parents had to switch a lot between countries. And in the end, we, we, we finished, we ended uh, learning a lot of languages. And as many bilinguals and multilinguals, I feel very unconfident about my languages because uh, the idea that you know a lot of them, but you don't know any of them well enough is quite persistent. Um, so I always try to convey uh, people the idea that there is nothing like a perfect competence. And uh, the most important aspect about speaking languages is speaking the languages you want to speak. And um, it's nothing like uh, being a good speaker or a bad speaker. It's just that you use the language you feel well about and the language that you feel confident in, even if you make mistakes or even if you don't feel absolutely um, agile in that language is what typically happens with speakers of heritage languages, because I, I'm not exactly a typical profile of a heritage speaker, but I do consider myself to be a heritage speaker of Russian because I have lived in Russia only for four years and uh, I have taken my Russian everywhere uh, together with my family. So at the end, I think that um, what we have to do is just try doing our best speaking languages. That's it. So Olga, you, you mentioned that you, you grew up in a multilingual family. Can you tell us about your parents and yourself and your siblings, perhaps? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I have one elder brother, um, which is, he, he actually, currently he lives in the UK, so he speaks more languages to my niece, uh, or he uses English as well with her, he uses Russian. Um, well, my parents uh, spoke to us in different languages, so we were a Russian-Ukrainian bilingual uh, family, and my parents also grew up in a very different surroundings. They talked Romanian and Russian, and my grandparents talked, used to use French and German because they uh, they still lived in the Russian Empire. So all generations in my family have used multiple languages. And for example, my mother already did not, but Jewish language was typically used in the surroundings from of my mother's family. So at the end, we're very much used to using many languages <laughs> and uh, different languages. And uh, there was, I don't remember any negative aspect about that, actually. So I think everybody in my family is very open to using languages, translanguaging, uh, although we do not translanguage too much. Uh, but uh, we know perfectly that um, some of us have some preferences for one language or another, and everybody respects each other. Uh, so now my, my brother uh, has a multilingual family, well, bilingual family. He actually 
well, he's a trilingual family, actually. Um, he, he uses and his wife, they use Ukrainian and Russian together, and they also use English uh, with my niece. And well, not only English with my niece, just uh, in the in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I do use Russian, and I also try to use Ukrainian, but I'm not so <laughs> not so efficient in doing that. And um, with my kids, and their father is Spanish speaking. Uh, so at the end, okay. we try to use different languages. So you said you you lived in Russia for four years. After that, where do you move? Uh, well, we spent different uh, periods of time in different countries. So the two countries we we lived the most were Ukraine and Moldavia. This where uh, my parents uh, were working or had some uh, family relationships. So we spent a lot of time in Moldavia where Romanian is used. And we also spent a lot of time in Ukraine where Ukrainian is uh, is used. And at the end, so we have this multilingual pot in the family. So then how did you learn English? Um, I don't remember how I started to learn English because it was like it always was there. Um, my, my father used English a lot because he was a scientist and he, he had to use English in his publications. And I do remember that my parents, uh, when they were talking about the laboratory work, because my mom also belonged to the same laboratory, they used to, to use English a lot. So it's something was something absolutely natural in the family, right? You, you had to read in English and you had to listen things in English and then you traveled and you had to, to expose yourself to English as well. Um, Spanish language, sometimes also appeared in the family before I moved to Spain because my father worked with a, Span- with a uh, polytechnical university in Catalonia. So he learned some Spanish and he learned Catalonia. And in the end, there was something like um, my, my parents' work introduced a lot of languages in the family at the end. So I, I just remember things like that my mom told, okay, you have to learn French because English is something that you will know. So I just simply remember aspects in my life that everybody was learning languages every day and every, every year. So I, I know that we have a lot of different types of attainments in this language. So I, I don't remember, I, I'm now in Germany, but I don't speak Germany, German very fluently. Actually, I don't consider myself to be a German learner or user, but I do remember that I learned some German uh, when I was a child. So I think it was like something a norm in the family. And, and when did you move to Spain? Well, I moved to Spain uh, for finishing my degree, um, and uh, I finished my degree here, well, not here, sorry, exactly, in Salamanca University, and then I enrolled in a PhD program and also in master's program, and this is how I, uh, well, actually, well, I first did my PhD and then my master's degree, just the other way around, <laughs> um, and uh, this is how I, I ended up in Salamanca, so uh, I, it was not the initial aim uh, because I moved then to Germany again um, in my postdoc, uh, but then I was offered um, lecturer in Spain, in Cáceres particularly, not exactly in Salamanca, and then in Salamanca I was offered a, a position of um, assistant lecturer, and this is how I I became this year associate professor. So this is a set of circumstances, you know, but um, this I just really have had a lot of experiences with speaking different languages to people around me. And what would you say your dominant language is, if you feel like you have one? Uh, it's a good question. Actually, I don't know. Um, you know, I, in this respect, uh, I know that people just can get surprised by this, uh, by this appreciation, because actually, I, if somebody tells me, okay, what language uh, do you 
do you usually use? So Spanish is my basic language currently because it's the language of my work. This is the language I use with my most of my my settings. And before my kids were born, actually Spanish was my first language uh, because I almost stopped using Russian. So it was only family domain language I used. And in the end, I um, I had I didn't have enough personal necessity to use it a lot. Actually, before my first child was born, I just do remember that summer when I went to, to, to spend some holidays with my parents, I just do remember that I spoke in totally fossilized Russian. It was less than like, uh, I can construct a simple sentence in, in Russian language. But when I was pregnant with my first child, I, I was absolutely convinced that I would talk to him in Russian, not because I, I felt that I could not speak to him in Russian, but because I thought that um, it was, it was necessary because um, it is one of his languages, not because I feel better or I feel worse, but I think that it was his right to, to, to have me talking to him in his language, which was my native language, actually. So, well, uh, the question about what, how do I feel now? Uh, well, now it's the first time in my life that I actually feel bilingual. I have always thought that bilingual, well, actually, I, I don't believe bilingualism true bilinguals exist because I observe people talking and I think there's nothing bad about that. So it is like imagine people, I don't know, it's, it's not a good comparison, but it's just like imagine people playing two different sports. Uh, you're always better in one than in another one. So it's absolutely normal because our cognition and our uh, neurocognitive abilities, uh, they are not limited. Of course, they are not, but they're always uh, predisposed to support something uh, over other aspects. So this is what happens with languages. It's absolutely difficult to become absolute bilingual. Um, and when I talk to, for example, uh, later on we can talk about that because one of the objectives of the association of this nonprofit uh, association that I founded in Salam founded in Salamanca was the idea not, uh, well, it, it, it is, it, it is objective to transmit Russian as heritage language, but it also pursues the ideal that we have to transmit knowledge about what is bilingualism to families who are not familiarized with this topic. So usual people, people who do not work with bilingualism. And I always tell them that it's absolutely normal not to feel bilingual because it's really difficult to imagine yourself to be bilingual. But curiously and contradictory now, I feel to be bilingual. Well, I, I, because I use two languages absolutely um, every day. And uh, I just feel in this respect, I, I really support the idea which which came from Franz Agros Jean from some, some decades ago. And then Albert Costa and his group supported that you're a bilingual when you, use two to when you use two languages, not when you think that you speak them apparently in the same way. But the question of being bilingual is that you have two languages that you systematically use in your everyday life. So I would say that currently, yes, uh, maybe my two dominant languages and the languages I feel very much identified with are Russian and Spanish. Uh, well, definitely I'm a typical uh, example of ultimate attainment in, in heritage language because I, I do have some um, influences from my Spanish uh, use in Russian because I'm much more exposed to Spanish, but I don't feel absolutely ashamed of that. I think it's, it's normal. We have to assume that our cognition is the way that it is. Yeah. Olga, tell us about your, your, your children. Uh, what yeah. age are they? What language you speak to them? What's the language policy at home? Yeah, well, my my uh, um, my, my son uh, is six. He will be six this Saturday, and my daughter will be four in March. So uh, they're still toddlers. They're young kids. Mm -hmm. um, and when I was pregnant with my uh, older child, I was uh, it was 
when exactly I, I became absolutely sure that I would like to speak in Russian to him and I wanted to support Russian. Um, so we do maintain one parent, one language policy. It's something like we never break. Uh, my husband doesn't speak any Russian. Well, he does his best, but <laughs> this, is, this is something like several phrases that he can manage. So we're a typical family uh, in which the minority language is quite endangered because uh, they live in the Spanish-speaking society. They are surrounded in Spanish-based. Uh, they do listen to their parents speaking in Spanish because it's our lingua franca at home. And the only input they receive in Russian is me and, well, my mother. So, so these virtual connections that you can have with my Russian-speaking family. Um, and, uh, of course, I think um, this uh, policy, one parent, one language policy, is the best, is the only option that we can maintain because it's the only way that we can support minority languages. There is nothing like... Um, okay, I'm going to speak to Spanish in him because he will catch Russian. It's, it doesn't work that way. So it only works. Uh, what, what I defend um, in my research, in my observation, is the only way to make somebody believe that, um, that they have to use this language to support it is to make your children feel that it is their language. Because if they don't feel that like their own language, they will not. Uh, invert enough time and, and effort in doing that, they will see no need in supporting this language. And sometimes it it may work. For example, if my or my native language were not Russian, but maybe English, there would be no problem because it's a prestigious language and everybody wants to learn it. But this is normally not the case. Normally, minority languages are not so prestigious languages. So Russian is an international language, but there are a lot of situations where People don't think it's to be important. So uh, it's very easy to lose it. And I think um, the, the strategy to make your children uh, use your language is to make them feel to be users of this language. Do you expose your children to any Russian TV? Do they have any favorite Russian TV shows they normally watch? Yeah, well... Um, I, I have tried a lot of things, so I, I think that I have I have read a lot of literature in this respect, and I have also shared a lot of ideas with other people. And I have I also think that multilingual moms or dads usually we are multilingual moms. Um, we do our best to invent strategies. So, for example, we have some rules at home that our cartoons are only in Russian, and we have Russian-speaking afternoons, so we watch movies. This movie should be in Russian, for example. We have had an odyssey, so to say, um, because uh, we wanted to, to buy a subscription for Amazon Plus for Disney movies. So it, it was extremely difficult, but we achieved buying a license for watching these movies in Russian instead of watching them in Spanish. So just, um, of course, it's a lot of effort. And uh, I have to recognize that not everybody has possibilities or time enough. I, I think that mainly it's not about money. It's much, much more about time. This is a problem of multilingual families to dedicate to this aspect. But um, what we do is uh, actually try to have Russian everywhere we can. So this is about cultural exposition. So we try to buy a lot of books every every trip to Ukraine, for example, we try to bring a lot of books in Russian. Um, well, internet is a fantastic media. <laughs> medium, actually can uh, have a lot of materials from there. Uh, but um, uh, one of the most important points probably about that is that when you teach your children and when you try to transmit your language to your children, at the end, if it is a minority language, you understand that you have to teach it. So it is about a procedimental learning. Of course, they catch it. But uh, as long as it's a minority language, um, I ended uh, up... Uh, 
teaching them, like a teacher, Russian language, so Russian alphabet, and we're still there. So because my, ch my, uh, my son is starting to read now, uh, so he learns Latin alphabet and Russian is Latin Cyrillic alphabet. And it's absolutely mixed mixture of of different uh, varieties. And uh, now he he absolutely see exactly. I'm just a bit worried about that. He enters in this period with children start to be very much influenced by their peers, and they want to do what they are made to do. So nobody in his classroom speaks Russian as he does. And now he says, okay, uh, do you really need that language that only you speak? Um, so it's now effective work starts. And of course, we try to do, we try to to travel uh, to Ukraine every um, every year at least, and my family starts to stay in contact. But um, I just want to underline that it's a privilege. A lot of families cannot afford that. And uh, what I can only say, and what is what I usually try to to transmit to families who collaborate with us with us in this association is that trips are good, but uh, they are not critical. You can still transmit your language doing other things. So just trying to do your best. It's a lot of effort. Actually, it's like to have another job. You actually work like a mother and you work like a language teacher every all, all day long. So I, I understand people who surrender. I, I try to, to support them, but I understand when they surrender because it's extremely complex to, to, to be a minority speaker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a surprise for a lot of parents how much effort it requires to transmit a minority. Yeah, actually, because people usually think that by well, uh, by talking is quite enough. Well, by talking is quite enough when you your 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 spouse or your partner speak the same language. So the, expo the exposition, the input uh, of the language is larger and bigger. And when you see that you're the only person who does it, and you see how difficult it may become, mm -hmm. um, well. I, I, the numbers, what, for example, the research that I do with the Russian Heritage Language in Spain are not very positive. Uh, many people arrive to, 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 to the second year of life of their children or to the third year of life of their children when their children start schooling and they abandon absolutely um, transmitting languages because they find it's so difficult and so tough and so complex that you work all day long and then you arrive home and you still have to insist on teaching a language. So many of them just forget about that. Just Olga, you mentioned that your older son is six years old and yeah. he's read it reading in, in Spain, I'm assuming in school, right? And yeah. now that he's interested, I'm assuming you're also trying to introduce uh, reading in Russian. Yeah. He's ready to do that. You also mentioned that he's, he's being influenced by his peers more and more now. Have you have a situation in which he said, I, I don't want to speak Russian, or like you said, he said to you, why do I need to speak or learn this language? How have you responded or navigated this kind of conversation with a six-year-old? Because we're really interested yeah. in that. <laughs> well, fortunately, he has not, we have not arrived to this point yet. So uh, he, he has never told me yet that he doesn't want to speak or he doesn't want to uh, to read. Um, well, um, but but I know that it will arrive. So sooner or later, he will he will say something like that. Okay, you understand my Spanish? Why don't you speak to me in Spanish? Or I, I can better read in in Spanish rather than in Russian. So actually, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know how uh, what what I would respond actually because um, what I believe is that um, well. Um, his competence in Russian and my, my daughter's competence, she's uh, three and a half, uh, could be better, of course. Uh, but 
I do think that they consider themselves to be Russian. I mean, um, they perfectly associate themselves with the house of their granny. Uh, they know they have this house that the granny only speaks this language and they have extremely developed identity with that. Of course, they are from here. They, they were born in Salamanca and this is their country, but uh, they also feel very much like um, Russian descendants. Uh, so uh, I really hope that um, that the question itself, as it is, just why don't you speak to me in Spanish, won't arrive that way. Uh, I just uh, simply hope that um, well that we will try to overcome in some way this uh, this situation. Um, I don't know, actually, um, this is a good question. I don't know what I would tell them because I don't want to pressure, uh, to make any pressure on them. I don't want them to feel that I'm angry, for example, if they don't speak, because it would mean that I associate negative emotions with, with Russian. I just simply want them to know that it's important for me, and I want them to understand that it's important for them as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's why I think it's so important to be consistent about what you do with your children. So this is where, for example, where, where I see uh, problems with other families, like at this point, many families start deciding not to speak in Russian because they say, okay, there is no effect. Right? I speak in Russian and he answers me in Spanish. So what I tell him that is just wait, <laughs> be consistent, be persistent, because at the end, he or she, your daughter, your, your son will, will go back. He will see that it's important for you. Uh, because at the end, uh, well, we do transmit languages, but at the end, we are mothers and children. So I think children are very sensitive about making mothers happy and the other way around, of course. Yeah. So you said your your children speak uh, Russian and they feel Russian in a way they, they feel like Russian. Yeah. Um, what is their dominance right now? You know, what languages they use with you and your spouse? Um, can you tell us about the Russian right now? How do you feel about it? How do they feel about it? Yeah. So you mean their proficiency, right? Yeah. Proficiency, identity, anything related to the actual yeah. language. Well, of course, they are, uh, from, the from the point of view of language, there's Spanish proficient, which is not, which has not always been like that. When there were babies and I spent much time, more time with them, uh, actually the first word that my both children said was in Russian in both cases, because um, they were exposed much more to Russian. I was their caregiver, principal caregiver. So at the end, they, they had a very good competence um, in Russian from the very beginning. And um, one of the strategies that we have applied in, in my family was that if we were exposed or we showed them a new object for the first time, for example, a ball or a balloon or whatever, we try to introduce the first name for this, uh, for this object in Russian so that to, to make them feel like that, well, the other word, which is the Spanish one, you will hear it a lot of time, but just remember this is called that way. Mm -hmm. um, well, they, um, interestingly, they have um, a very good metalinguistic, metapragmatic competence in the sense that they perfectly know whom to speak in which language. So they will never address my mother in Spanish. This will right. never happen. This has never happened. In the, and they never address me in Spanish. Actually, uh, well, I have, have done several experiments, so to say, with them. And for instance, we were in the street and, and I addressed my son in Spanish and he looked at me like that. What do you do? Like... <laughs> you're not Spanish speaking, right? Uh, so they perfectly know that mom always speaks Russian and granny always speaks Russian and there is a part of the family which does and they perfectly know who does not. And one of the good examples of what they do is that 
they spontaneously translate. So, for example, uh, when when we go to the um, parents-in-law house, uh, who are only, they only speak Spanish language, and I talk to my children in Russian, and I tell them, for instance, in Russian, okay, go and tell your granny that uh, we have arrived. Just they perfectly do that in Spanish. They have no problem in translating from one language to another, and they perfectly understand the concept. Uh, the problem, of course, arrives when we speak about this exact proficiency. So uh, I perfectly observe, for instance, in, in Jorge, who is six now, that uh, he lacks a lot of vocabulary in Russian, right? So he, he knows a lot of specific words in Spanish because, he, for example, he likes electricity, so he knows the name of all the cables and blah, blah, blah in Spanish. But, he, of course, everything is a cable for him in Russian. Yeah. Um, but, well, I just simply suppose that it's a question of time and exposition to, to these terms, right? But they, this is impressive how children are able to capture metapragmatic knowledge, right? So they perfectly know who speaks what languages. What language do they use with each other? I'm curious. Uh, that's a good point. Uh, well, um, it depends. Well, um, recently they use much more Spanish because they also coincide in the same school this year. So um, they meet each other in the yard and uh, they eat together. So it's an absolutely Spanish speaking um, community. Uh, but it's curious that they can spontaneously um, switch to Russian. And mainly it is in my presence. So if I'm there, they try to switch to Russian. Um, it's true that they communicate more in, in Spanish. Sometimes I say, okay, why don't you speak Russian? And they immediately switch. Um, so maybe by, by, um, by habit, they, they speak more, Russian, more Spanish among them, but they have no problems in speaking Russian. Curiosity about my, about my kids. In Russian, I do not call them, well, they, their name are George and Julia, they are Jorge and Julia. So this is a typical Spanish names. Uh, but in Russian, I have adopted their names and they sound differently. So I do call my son George, which is um, like, well, it's, it's not a very typical Russian, but it's, uh, it reminds me a little bit how how, how my, my French ancestors used to, to, to call each other in the family, it's like in French adaptation. And um, uh, Julia, Julia has a different name. Uh, when George was, when Jorge was a baby and she was born, uh, he couldn't pronounce her name and, and he called her Luli, right? It's like uh, the short form, so Julia. Well, and curiously, when they speak to each other in Spanish, they say Jorge Julia, so they always use their total nicknames. But when they talk in Russian, they say to each other George and Luli, so they switch names. I love that so much. Yeah, that's, that's, that's it's really um, a very beautiful moment, yeah. So um, since you happen to be bilingualism expert as well, could you talk a little bit about your research and how that has informed um, how you raise your own children, if at all? Yeah, uh, well, I, I was, uh, I have always been very interested in bilingualism. I, I particularly work with, uh, with cognition. I try to understand how cognition um, is influenced by bilingualism in the other way around. And I also um, recently introduced a new variety, which is which are called affectivity and emotions, and try to understand what people do, how they decide to transmit their languages. Uh, this happens because, uh, well, Salamanca is not a typical city where you can find a lot of Russian speakers. Usually Russian speakers in Spain are located near the coast. But, um, you know, this, the snowball method, <laughs> method works. And if you have a friend who is Russian speaking, sooner or later you find that there are like 50 20 families like yours well there are more actually living in Salamanca so we started to meet each other firstly we we organized like a group of um, 
of expats. Um, and then um, I decided to organize together with a friend this association because we, what we wanted was to um, have, so to say, a legal support uh, for teaching Russian as heritage language to, to children from these families. And um, well, Maria was teaching and I was observing this for our, our treat. Uh, what I wanted to, to observing uh, as a researcher was who transmitted Russian and why, and who did not transmit Russian and why. Because many of these families from this community do take their children to this Russian heritage language lessons. But at the end, you see that their children don't speak any Russian. So this, there was the question about why does it happen? And so I, I started to, to research on them and to explore their sociolinguistic situations. And what I found was that it wasn't so much about sociolinguistic situation. Of course, it influences, it has a lot of determinant role. What I found is what primary influenced on their decision to, to transmit Russian was their uh, emotional association with Russian. Um, so I just can give you an example in order to illustrate it. Um, it's not about being... A, a, the first idea that I had was that um, more um, economic, um, economically um, strong families would have more possibilities to transmit Russian, but this wasn't exactly the true. There is one family um, with one of the moms um, who is um, financially quite quite um, strong, so they didn't have any problem with uh, with, with uh, about um, financial effects. They, they, they can travel and they can support a lot of development for children because um, at the end, financial support is really important in heritage language transmission because it directly identifies to which extent you can support your children in learning languages. It's, it's not extremely determinant, but it can help. Well, and uh, I interviewed her and um, what I found is that she, she took the, her daughter, who is now eight, and at this moment she was five, to the lessons. Uh, but I asked her, why, don't, why doesn't your daughter understand us? And she said, oh, just, just because I don't speak to her in Russian. So, and I asked her, why don't you speak to her in Russian? And she said, okay, just, I think that, um, well, it's not a language I would like her to speak because it's a language uh, of politically not stable country, because it's a language of country of a lot of illegal immigrants. Um, because but actually, I don't want her to travel there. I think that she would better learn English or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I just started to try to understand what happens. And what I found is that a lot of Russian speaking uh, immigrants have a lot of negative attitudes about Russian language, not about Russian language, actually, it's about their, their past, uh, about where they come from and what were their original situations. Um, so the way they feel about their past, they feel about the language. And many of them believe that if you speak Russian, then you will be always seen as an immigrant or illegal immigrant and somebody who comes from bad country, and so to say. And they simply decide not to transmit it to their children. It's not about effort or not having possibilities to transmit it. It's just about what they feel about that. And on the contrary, there are, we have two families which are well, just um, to, to give a con contrast of examples, which have no possibilities there, they have um, enormous financial problems, so they don't have one of the families is, is only the mom, and she even doesn't have a spouse, and so she's a, um, she's a single mother, mm -hmm. and she does her best to transmit Russians. It's, it's not about being a potential and have a lot of means, it's, it's about how you feel about that. So uh, at the end is how I was involved. So I do believe that emotions have a lot to do. Uh, the way you feel about your past is exactly the way you feel about your about your language. And this is what you transmit to your children. Yeah, I don't know if you've read uh, any of Monica Schmid's work. 
she works with yeah. German, um, and she's found very similar things with German immigrants who, you know, have That's right. negative attitudes toward German. The other thing that I was going to mention is the socioeconomic status variable is is interesting to me. In in the U.S., we found with Spanish-speaking immigrants that there's this paradox where um, families with high socioeconomic status say that they value bilingualism and maintaining Spanish more, but they actually use less Spanish at home because their majority language proficiency is stronger and lower socioeconomic status families say that they want their kids to learn the majority language, but they the result is that they don't know the majority language. So their kids actually become better Spanish speakers. And so there's this kind of paradox between attitudes and the reality. So I don't know if you've seen something like that. Um, and Spanish is a little bit different in the US just because there's so many Spanish speakers. Yeah. I think this is a difference because at the end, the Russian speaking community in Spain is not so extremely big, right. so it's not so easy to maintain this networking. Um, so you do, you do have some people that you can contact, but you don't have um, like neighborhoods or communities or even villages, uh, which would be absolutely, um, absolutely uh, populated right by by Russian speakers. So the network is very is very diffuse. Um, but it's also um, it's I don't know to which extent I would say that it is characterized in the same way as what happens with Spanish speakers in the US. Mm -hmm. uh, because what I have tried to analyze is uh, that um, and I have found is that it's, it depends very much on several generations of the Russian speakers because uh, Russian immigration, well, but when I mean Russian immigration, I mean very frequently immigration from all post-Soviet uh, um, territory right. because right. many speakers from other post-Soviet countries also use Russian. Um, so um, they have arrived in different waves and um, the more recent the wave, I mean the wave probably in 2014, 2018, the better or the, the, the yeah the better or the more they maintain this pro-russian heritage language policy but if you have a look at the families uh, who whose members have arrived in 90s or to or at the beginning of the century maybe to 2010 um, they are drastically uh, influenced by the idea that they come from a poor country and uh, they just don't want their kids to 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 to, to use this language I just can give you an example of another woman. Well, she doesn't have a child, but she has a niece. Um, she has immigrated with her sister. And um, this this lady, she's, well, she, she, she's still a young lady. She's 40 something. Um, well, when she arrived to Spain, she decided to forget absolutely Russian. She, she, she even doesn't say you where she's from. She speaks with enormous accent in, in Spanish, but she never uses Russian because she believes that it is her cross. She doesn't want to do anything with the Russian language. And she convinced her sister who has a daughter not to speak in Russian to her daughter. So she convinced her not to do that because she said, oh, it's it's so bad heritage, she, say, she says. You don't know what you do with her. So this this is um, the idea that some speakers can support about what the language can mean. Um, well, uh, um, impressive, right? Because they directly modify the language policy. Mm -hmm. Okay, you mentioned that you your family tries to travel back to Ukraine um, once a year or as often as you can. But I'm curious to see, have you noticed a pattern on whether these people who might not show as much um, activity, this, this positive emotions towards their heritage language also seem to not travel back at all? 
Well, it depends very much because uh, it's um, it's not so to say it's not a cheap trip. So sometimes we can excuse these people. Well, we can understand that they do not travel not because they do not want, but it's because you know, they can do not always can do that. Um, um, of course, those who travel are usually very much in, um, concerned with teaching uh, Russian as, as heritage language. So um, in our association, we have a family who actually tries to go back to Russia uh, all September because it coincides with the beginning of the academic course in Russia. And they enroll their daughters all September in Russian schooling uh, in order to support Russian language there. So there are people who are very much concerned about that. Um, once I remember. I interviewed the spouse of one of the women who belongs to, to our association and I asked him, okay, where are you going to go on your vacations? And he told me, are you crazy? We always go to the same desti destination. It's always Russia, mm -hmm. right? Because um, they're very much concerned with that. They have to sacrifice their holidays and their holidays are always in Russia because it's the only way they can support their children. But of course, it's, a, it's an expensive trip, especially if you think about family trips. Um, so there are, um, the majority of the families don't go back. So they, they, they find it extremely difficult to support. Um, and um, usually, uh, they, 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 you can notice that they have this problem. So they actually would need that, right? Um, one year uh, in our association, we decided to offer, uh, so to say, a Russian-speaking camp in summer. And I asked in the association who would be interested in joining that, and only one family said they were. So in the end, um, you know, it's um, it depends. People um, are concerned about teaching their languages, but there are all other a lot of factors that are more important sometimes. You know, so when people think about that, they have to um, to dedicate a lot of efforts to doing something about the language. So they just uh, say, well, okay. I will spend usual holidays, but I wouldn't go back. Um, so I think in this respect, you can find all type of families. Uh, they're very much concerned with the teaching of Russian. Uh, those who have abandoned that and people in the middle who just say, okay, if it's easy, I will do it. But if it's not easy, I, I won't do it, right? Just to kind of conclude a little bit, what advice do you have for other multilingual families out there you know, any languages or specifically Russian speaking? Hmm. Well, I, I always say that um, I think that being a member of a multilingual family is the best thing that can ever happen to you uh, because um, it's, it's an incredible experience. Uh, not only because you can communicate, but because the way you feel, the way the, the way it makes you feel that you can express yourself in different ways, and you can communicate with other people, and the ties you can maintain with the people around you. Because at the end, what matters is the your family, is the people who who gave you birth, and the people who live with you, and the way you make can make these people happy is by communicating with them in their languages. So I think it's extremely important not to be ashamed of not being good speakers. So this is one of the messages I always I, I always try to, to leave a take-home message to the people I speak to. It doesn't matter whether you speak with an accent or you make mistakes, you don't forget the words, it's okay, it's not a problem. Uh, the problem is if you don't use 
is the language. This is a real problem. Uh, the question is, we have to try to maintain them. All languages are equally important and languages are parts of our identity. Um, so even if we don't have family to communicate with, it may happen that we are the only ones who speak this language because of any circumstance. We have to maintain it because languages shape the way we are. Um, I don't now speak about the language relativity, but I speak about that, uh, well, languages is the way we feel. We feel in language, in a language, and you cannot just simply erase your emotions and your feelings from your life. So I really, I really think it's extremely important to, um, to maintain all those languages. I know it's an enormous task. I think that we also have to vindicate and make it visible that being a mother or a father in a multilingual family, it's extremely difficult. It's just like a second job, you know? It's just, it's just a job to be a parent and it's a job um, to teach your language because uh, circumstances can be quite um, adverse, you know? Uh, it may be absolutely difficult and um, complicated teaching a language, but we have to try to do our best. The most, the most important point is that we have to try to transmit our identity to our children because children, um, at, at the end, children are those that we are with them. At the end, we, 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 we educate our children the way that we behave. Um, that's why it's so important for that- For better or for worse. <laughs> yeah, that they do not lose this identity because we are part of their identity and the languages we give them is part of their identity. That's why I think it's so important to, to be happy about being multilingual and to be happy of being a parent of a bilingual child. This is the best thing. This is the best child, a bilingual child, actually. Yeah. They're super so, cute. Double the cuteness. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We're here throwing her some hearts for those of you who can't see anything. <laughs> yeah, so but I think I, what she's trying to say is, or what we all want to say is, be kind to yourself and your kids. Yeah. You know, don't be too hard on yourself. Understand that it's difficult. And don't be too hard on your kids if they feel don't feel confident or make mistakes or yeah. some days don't want to speak the minority language just be kind to yourself yeah. yeah and Olga you said your your children speak some Russian too and since they seem to have a really positive attitude because you make sure to transmit that to them I'm pretty sure there's some co-switching happening at home and we were just interested to see if yeah. there's maybe like a favorite invented word that they came up with or like a co-switch that kind of resonates with you and make you laugh um, if you could just share that experience with us I think it's a really positive end note for the episode <laughs> this was a funny thing. Um, my 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 son tried to explain to us what he ate at school, and it was menestra, and just he didn't remember how to say that in 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 Russian. He said, "Okay, I ate um, a salad with water or something like that." So he just simply translated it. <laughs> <laughs> salad with water. <laughs> yeah. So it was extremely beautiful because he he just know knew the concept, but he didn't know how to say that in 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 Russian. Curiously, in Russian, menestra is the same word. Uh, you know, because it's a, it's a long word. I <laughs> did his ride, you know, the salad with water. <laughs> well, it was, it was there. <laughs> for sure. So, yeah. well, thank you so much for your time and expertise, Olga. I'm happy thank you. that I was able to run into your article. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. We really appreciate your time and your expertise. And for those of you listening from home, stay tuned for another episode of Multilingual Mamas. Hasta
ever have questions for us or questions about the podcast, go to home and our website at www.multilingualmamaspodcast.com and click on the link for questions. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram and stay tuned for another episode of Multilingual Mamas.